Welcome to the archives of The Loralee Show, conversation for exploration, timeless discussions to challenge and expand our worldview. And while you may find our guests fascinating, the views expressed may not necessarily reflect those of our own or of the Kuimange Institute. That's why we call it conversation for exploration. And join in our ongoing live events, interviews, our own presentations, and much, much more as we go exploring. Learn more at kuiamungainstitute.com and lauralee.com. And hello there, I'm Laura Lee, and thanks for tuning in to Conversation for Exploration. Hello, I'm Laura Lee. Have you ever had one of those moments where you were totally absorbed in a project, where the creativity was flowing, where time went by in a sense of timelessness? Many hours might pass, and it feels like a very short time had gone by, where you seem to almost be witnessing yourself at work on this project, where you're connected to some larger stay space, some larger beingness that seems to be directing and helping you, that's acting as your muse for this project. That state of mind, it's a common one. We don't often know how to get it. It sometimes just happens to us when all the conditions are right. But that state of mind has a name. It's called Flow by our next guest. And he's made quite a study of it. The good news is these kinds of states can become permanent fixtures in our life. And they're part of what defines life as being fulfilling, as being contentment, and as adding that very richness of life uh, to your experience. And uh, we have Mihai Shiksent Mihai. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, and he's been studying flow state and its connection to creativity for over two decades. Welcome, Mihai. Thank you, Laura. It's oh, a this is one of my favorite, favorite experiences, and it's so fun that psychology is now taking this seriously and taking a look at it to know how uh, to find out how we can all share in it and make more of this state of flow and and the sense of creativity. Um, you, you're Hungarian, right? Were right. you born there? Um, I was born actually in Italy, but um, we kept going back uh, quite often um, to Hungary. And that was kind of part of the inspiration for my work, really, because I was there during World War II uh, as a child, and um, I saw the uh, disintegration of the whole society during the war and how people um, were completely lost and and, uh, floundering about, and uh, the whole, uh, uh, all the adults that I knew, uh, parents and uh, friends, uh, grown-ups, who didn't seem to know what was going on. And as a child, I felt, uh, oh, what's going on? You know, uh, I thought adults knew what they were doing, but apparently they don't. And that st- um, steered me towards uh, ch- uh, psychology, and, and that's how I became interested in trying to understand um, what makes people tick. And... Uh, uh, unfortunately, most psychology was concerned with pathology, with things that go wrong with um, mental disease or with, um, you know, all, all forms of uh, t- uh, delinquency and pathology. And I thought that uh, 
if we want to, to live a life that's meaningful, that's worth living, we should know more about um, the things that go well. And There's a parallel movement happening in medicine where, where now doctors um, such as Andrew Weil are now looking at what is spontaneous healing. When things go right, let's study that to find out if we can imitate that or set up similar conditions uh, in medicine. And so you're doing the parallel in psychology. Right. Let's examine that. Right. the optimal states and learn about those. It must be much more enjoyable a study than to to just research the pathology as well. I mean, well, maybe that's partly partly why I did it too because uh, I experienced those times and I was wondering how to make them occur more frequently. And uh, I thought that um, I would get a a head start if I actually knew more about it by doing research. How did you begin that process of studying that? Well. Uh, I was a graduate student in the Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago, where I was a student, and um, I was trying to find ways to study these these moments that I think made life worthwhile. I I played chess when I was young at, in tournaments, and I used to climb rocks, and um, I did I painted and uh, wrote poetry and things of that sort. Each one of these activities were very enjoyable, and but they were difficult to come by and day in, day out. And I, I was wondering, you know, how can you study this kind of stuff? And uh, at the time, uh, there was nothing in psychology that even resembled these things. Uh, but um, luckily, one of my professors at Chicago was had just written a book on creativity and intelligence. So I thought by studying creativity, I would get close to this feeling. And so I wrote my dissertation on creativity. Um, a study of, I studied 300 students at the Art Institute, uh, young artists who were um, uh, planning to become uh, professionals. And after in this group, um, I was able to follow actually this group of young artists um, we followed for about 20 years uh, to see which one would succeed which wouldn't so creativity was um, the way that I thought that you could legitimately study the kind of optimal experiences and in studying creative artists I, I realized that one of the things that was more, most interesting about them was the state of complete immersion in their work that they showed, and that's how the flow research started. Actually, it was a byproduct of creativity, and now I'm returning to creativity with this latest book. Um, let's define flow and then creativity from the parameters with which you, as a psychologist, look at them. How do you define flow? We we mentioned a few of the attributes. All right, all right. Well, um, generally. The um, conditions that people mention when what they do is is really um, completely enjoyable have to do with the fact that they become so concentrated, so focused on what they do that they forget everything else and they mm -hmm. don't notice time, they don't notice, they forget themselves, so there is a, a going beyond of the ego. And usually that happens when a person has very clear goals moment by moment, like when you play tennis, you know where the ball should fall, or if you sing a song, you know what the next note or uh, the next uh, uh, measure has to be. 
you get feedback, you know how well you're doing, so that keeps you uh, focused because if you don't get feedback as to how well you're doing, what you're doing, it's hard to keep concentrated. So uh, either the feedback has to come from outside, like when you play tennis, or from inside, when uh, as an artist you know what's a good line. If you're a poet, you know what a good line is. If you're a um, painter, you you know what a good uh, combination of colors would be. So you you get that feedback from what you're doing. And then uh, one of the most important things is this balancing of challenge and skill. Uh, in everyday life, we are often in situations where either we have too much challenge for what we can do, and then we feel anxious, mm -hmm. or we have too little challenge for our skills, and then we feel bored. And that seems to be very often the condition in which we are, whereas when you are in flow, you feel that you, if you play your cards right, you are going to make it. And so that you have to stretch yourself, but you know that it's possible to do it, to accomplish what you want to do. So that that combination of things is what uh, produces this uh, flow experience. And creativity. How does flow relate to creativity? Well, one thing is uh, that uh, creative people... Um, all of the ones, these 100 I talked to, or the ones that I studied uh, uh, 30 years ago already, and any any other creative person I, I ever heard of or read about, um, loves what they are doing. They, they get completely involved in what they are doing. So it could be whether they are scientists or, or uh, poets or artists, they... Um, they get flow from what they are doing, and if they don't, if they didn't get flow, they would not have the motivation to break beyond the what's known or what's already accomplished. Because mm -hmm. only only if you love what you're doing will you have the incentive to persevere beyond what everybody else knows or everybody else expects you to do. Otherwise, you know, if you don't love it, you stop uh, at the limits. You know where you get. Uh, recognition and money, but but that um, taking the that risk, inner drive. Of, yeah, that inner drive comes uh, generally only to people who who love what they are doing. So uh, in that sense, flow is necessary to to almost any creative accomplishment, but it's not enough. Uh, here's a couple of book titles. Mihai has written three books on flow and creativity. Let me give you the titles. Wonderful books to further your study of this. A lot has been known, investigated, and written about this. His latest is Creativity, Flow, and the Psychology of Discovery and Invention, wherein you interviewed, what, 90 people, from authors to scientists to senators to actors, about creativity. Uh, earlier works include Flow, the Psychology of Optimal Experience, Steps Towards Enhancing the Quality of Life, and then The Evolving Self, a Psychology for the Third Millennium. We'll talk about all of this and more when we come back with Mihai Shikszentmihalyi. I'm Laura Lee.
Laura Lee, back on The Laura Lee Show. We're talking with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. He's studied for many decades creativity and flow. Flow, uh, that optimal experience of being so absorbed into your work that time disappears and it's almost an altered state. Is this actually an altered state flow? Do you define it as such? Well, um, you know, I don't know what the normal state is, so it's hard to know what's altered. I mean, uh, what's normal is a kind of convention that we uh, uh, use to uh, for everyday reality. This is not everyday reality uh, generally. I mean, you feel almost uh, that you're stepping out from routine, so you're in a kind of ecstatic state. Um, and Certainly, it has certain chemical, probably chemical properties that are different from normal kind of uh, experience. But um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that it is uh, a kind of a mysterious uh, event. I think uh, we are, in a sense, programmed neurologically to experience flow because that is how we push beyond. Uh, the status quo, that's how we learn new things, that's how we explore. Um, uh, when you ask people what's the most similar to the, the experience of flow, they say it's like discovering, uh, exploring, discovering something new. So I think it's it's a great thing for humans uh, to have the, the this built-in uh, enjoyment of things which are uh, future-oriented that that push us into the future to discover, to to explore, to to find jo- uh, enjoyment in creating new things. So I I think um, that should be the normal thing, you know. Uh, the kind of boring everyday reality should be the altered state, you know. I mean that should be the <laughs> thing that you say, hey, this is not how it should be. You should Let me get back into the groove and into, get back into yeah, that flow. I think so. And children, you know, small, uh, children normally are like that if if they have a, a good environment. Suddenly, if they're abused or deprived, it's not like that. But normal children are in flow most of the time. I mean, that, I think that's their normal state. And, um, but in most cultures, that gets beaten out of them either through schooling or through conformity. To, to some kind of a social system that requires them to be uh, subservient to some ruling caste or something, you know, and then, then, then you begin to act as a, more like a robot rather than a human being, which is open and exploring and doing it too. But uh, having been indoctrinated into the boring existence, then I guess they're just better workers in the cog, uh, say. But society needs those people that step out, that push the seams of the envelopes, that take us to that next level. You've studied many of them in many fields of life. How did you make your selection, and what kind of things did you ask these people? You wanted to find what was the common ground for creativity. uh, These 90... Uh, two people that are in the book since then we inv- interviewed others. And this is the book Creativity. Creativity, just want to mention. yeah. Uh, were selected essentially, uh, one criterion was that they would be over 60 years of age and still doing in, uh, and had changed some aspect of the culture. The reason over 60 was because we didn't want to get 
um, someone who was a flash in the pan, but someone who had a whole life in which they did interesting different things. And so, uh, and so we had this age, uh, uh, up lower limit of 60 years and, uh, the upper, the the other condition was that they had to change an aspect of culture. If they were poets, they had to write poetry that people recognized as as being um, a new new style or or um, perfecting an old style. If they were um, painters, they should be recognized as such. We had fifteen Nobel Prize. I had fifteen Nobel Prize winners, whom uh, mostly in the sciences, and uh, uh, all of these people. Uh, you could, when you know what they have accomplished, you know they are creative, but they are not representative. They weren't selected randomly because it would be almost impossible to get a random selection of creative people. So uh, they are all um, um, uh, um, people whom once um, you you see see them and, and know what they have done, you. Uh, recognize as, as changes of the culture. What we asked them were uh, a number of questions. One set of questions had to do with um, their childhood, how they grew up, uh, what they did, when they started getting interested in what they were doing. Another set of questions, uh, actually we covered their whole life, for instance. We tried to find out how uh, the middle years and how they, the current year was different from uh, 20 years ago, for instance. And many of these people were 90, 80, 80s, 90s. That was one, one section, just describe their whole life cycle. And that was very interesting right there to, to see the um, commonalities in that. Uh, for instance, um, as children, most of these people came from two very opposite types of families. Um, either very, very disrupted uh, families or... As in dysfunctional? Well, not so much that, I, I would say. But for instance, uh, fathers uh, dead. Many, many of the these people, disproportionately compared to, to normal people, they lost their father very early some their mothers too. So they, they were orphaned, many of them. Many of them ha were sick as children. Many of them came from lower class immigrant families or from families that uh, were uh, dis disrupted by the depression and so forth. So they were either from that, this type of families or from families where uh, the parents were themselves intellectual, artistic, and very supportive of the child. Mm -hmm. What you missed was the big middle ground. I mean, almost very few uh, of the middle class or normal childhood. So you either, uh, this kid, these people either had to be stressed as children or very supported to get them into mm -hmm. that kind of... Uh, Motivation to get started, um, well, taking seriously uh, one of the, you know, either the science or the art. To what do you attribute that? Either somebody was very, very challenged, or they were very swept supportive. along, yeah, yeah, by the support. Well, I think one of the things about being in a comfortable middle class family is that you feel that this is great. Why try 
to uh, you don't have much to prove you don't have much to fight against and so you go along and uh, yourself will get a good uh, job a good education but you are not pushed uh, to to concentrate so much on any one area that uh, which is what you need in order to to then become creative we're going to come right back with Mihai Mihai on flow and creativity. We're going to find out how we can apply some of the principles of flow to our own life to enhance our own creativity in whatever it is that we do. Uh, this is supposed to be, this is expected to be, the study of flow, the most productive area coming in the field of psychology. We'll find out more about it. I'm Laura Lee. Lee, back on the Laura Lee Show. We're talking about flow and optimal state and creativity with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, a uh, professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. His books, by the way, include Creativity, Flow in the Psychology of Discovery and Invention. That's his latest. Earlier works include The Evolving Self, a Psychology for the Third Millennium, and Flow, the Psychology of Optimal Experience. I wanted to ask you about one of these 90 people that you interviewed for your latest work, Creativity. I noticed Linus Pauling. Um, he's been so uh, forward-thinking in terms of his research and uh, made such a contribution. I can see why he's on his list. Tell me about him in terms of your study. Well, uh, yes, uh, Laura, um, Pauling was suddenly one of the stars in the group that I studied. We uh, interviewed uh, him when he was 89 years old, which is a couple years before he passed away. But at 89, he uh, was still so full of uh, energy and interest and enthusiasm that he looked like a kid of seven or eight years old. It's all that vitamin C he took, no doubt. Oh, it it was really uh, remarkable. And he uh, he could tell you, in fact, uh, what he was doing when he was seven or eight years old, the the name of his friends, uh, the addresses where they lived, and all of that. I mean, uh, he he was a man who lived uh, uh, at the edge of enthusiasm every minute of his life. And, in fact, he... He said that he never did in his life anything that he didn't want to do, that he didn't enjoy doing, and uh, he never asked what he should be doing because he always had something he enjoyed doing. And and he he was typical in many cases. For instance, his father died when he was eight years old, when Linus was eight years old. His father was a pharmacist down in Portland, and... um, uh, Linus uh, was asked by his father to come and help him in the back of his drugstore to mix chemicals and drugs, you know. And and so Linus started uh, with his uh, fascination about the fact that you can mix two different compounds and come up with a third one, which was completely different from the two that you mixed up. And so he was, um, he thought that, you know, here is the secret of uh, somehow the secret of how the universe is put together, he would uh, learn. So he learned uh, chemistry outside of school by reading uh, first the whole uh, pharmacopoeia, which is this Latin uh, collection of all the known drugs and he learned that uh, he read that when he between the ages of six and nine and and his father helped him 
Then his father passes away, but the other drugstore owners in Portland uh, decided to to get and continue his education by taking him in one day a week. Um, they t- uh, kind of uh, he would be uh, mentorship is yeah, very helpful in this process. Yeah, it's very very helpful. And so he went on. Uh, his uh, mother was poor, and his siblings um, needed. Um, help. So he worked um, every minute that he wasn't in school and he ended up at Caltech, uh, but he wasn't a prodigy like many of these people. He he just was fascinated by what he was doing and he was lucky because um, this was the moment when quantum theory and physics was beginning to be important and he was able to apply this to chemistry and Lo and behold, he got a Nobel Prize in chemistry uh, quite early in his life. And since then, he got another Nobel Prize in peace because he became interested in trying to um, use science as a way of uh, uh, saving uh, humanity from from the misapplication of science, namely nuclear energy and so forth. But um, the point about him was that... uh, Everything he touched became interesting to him. He um, um, is fascinated. Uh, some of his best ideas came sitting uh, once in a dentist chair and and being given laughing gas, which was uh, anesthetic <laughs> at the time. And he was wondering how this gas could act on the nerves. Um, what was the mechanism by which this uh, gas acted? And and uh, he says he thought about this problem for like five years uh, on and off, you know, before falling asleep. And then um, finally coming up with a, uh, an important understanding of the uh, chemistry of uh, uh, the nervous system. So uh, this is this is typical. Okay, so he is a young man who has a lot of troubles, but... Uh, finds a way of, of persevering and overcoming them and, and being interested in everything he does. Uh, very, very typical. Uh, and being multidisciplinary as well, yeah. not having tunnel vision as much. As oh, yeah. yeah. All, of, all of these people, one of the important things you, you put your finger on it is is that uh, these people are not, they are specialists in the sense that they learn to master a particular domain of knowledge, but... They are not specialists in the sense that they are, their interest goes far beyond what a specialized knowledge involves. And so they, they learn from everything they do, and they learn from neighboring disciplines, and they are able to integrate that in their own. The experience with the laughing gas, I know a lot of uh, inventors have come up with their eureka moments in dreams that they then remember. Um, It seems that some of these states, even the flow state, in in my mind is, well, we discussed that a bit. It's a bit out of the the, the realm. It seems like these people are very good at stepping outside that 3D limited point of view point of view of reality and accessing that flow state, that creativity around the edges. Do you find that to be? Yeah, definitely. Um, Driving but, uh, in the shower. I mean, there's other yeah, yeah. moments One, one of the people uh, was saying that um, his company lost several million dollars, the first company he worked for, 
because they uh, refused to install a $14,000 shower in his office because all his good ideas came with showering. And and so um, since then he moved on and, and uh, made a lot of discoveries. But, but, in an office uh, with a shower. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, the, the fact that you have to break through the conventional ways of thinking and acting is, is obvious. I mean, that's the way you become creative. I, I should point out, though, that in order to do that, you have to have your feet solidly planted also in some discipline. You have to have knowledge and tradition. Uh, the nice thing about these people is that they are both very traditional and very iconoclastic, very kind of rebellious and, and breaking of the rules. But unless you, you are also traditional, that is, you respect the past, you respect the knowledge, the hard-won knowledge and skill of the past. If you don't have that respect, you are not going to be able to move up to the frontiers of your field and then go beyond. So you have to have both. And you need a foot in each world. It's that yeah. balance you spoke about earlier, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's the amazing thing about these people is that they do seem to have usually both the extremes that uh, most of us have only one uh, extreme of. For instance, let's say um, you you keep hearing that creative people are kind of androgynous, that is, they have both masculine and feminine characteristics. And um, we find that too. I mean, the men are, um, there's nothing unmasculine about them, but they are also sensitive and have many of the qualities that you usually uh, associate with uh, the female gender. Whereas the, the um, feminine, uh, the, the female creative people, the women in this group, are also very dominant and quite aggressive, like men usually are. So, uh, they have both both characteristics. I think this is one way we, we get limited at birth or, or very early in life is that we are drilled into being either very masculine or very feminine or being very extrovert or being introverted. These people are both extroverted and introverted. Um, they are both traditional and, and bra- uh, rebellious. They are masculine feminine. They are uh, very playful and yet at the same time very responsible and very uh, rigorous in their work. So that is the nice thing about them, that somehow they are able to express the full range of human potentials, which usually we we get kind of stunted in our education to to express only one part of what we can be. There's a myth going around that you have to suffer in order to be a genius, that geniuses are very tortured minds, and yet the flow state is an enjoyable state. It's it's to do with that richness of life and being in that, that larger state space. So there's a conflict here. What have you found out about that? Well, uh, see, it's true that sometimes um, it takes... Uh, um, a tragedy or a trauma like the death of your father, let's say, or uh, sudden poverty or being marginal. To well, Buckminster get... Fuller almost committed suicide before he decided right, to give his life and his right. experiment and, and went on to be that genius. But Yeah, that, that often is the thing that pushes you to focus in on, on something outside of your own personal life to, to devote all your energy into whatever you're doing. But 
after that, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you are not going to be very like. It's not very likely that you will be creative. So or stick with it. Or stick with it long enough. And uh, in in my study, one of the things that was surprising was how many of these people actually had fairly uh, quite well balanced lives. I mean, so many of these people were married. Um, for over 50 years to the same partner, for instance. And so the notion, for instance, that creative people are all over the place in terms of their relationships and they're very un unstable uh, in terms of relations, that doesn't seem to be the case, at least. Uh, it's not certainly necessary. And, um, uh, and many of them have lives that were, um, especially the scientists, you know, had lives which were quite orderly and, and satisfying and fulfilling. Um, the artists, of course, suffer more, and there is quite a bit of evidence that uh, playwrights and poets suffer from depression and alcoholism much more than normal people do. But I think that's not... Uh, not a prerequisite. Not a prerequisite. It's it's the uh, really the this byproduct of being in a field uh, which is not recognized. Right? It's so difficult to get any kind of recognition or success. So you devote all your life um, and uh, to writing poetry, and nobody pays any attention. I mean, I would be. That could be frustrating. Yeah, I think for that could be That could cause depression. Um, you also write that there's another myth that goes on that creative people are often seen as arrogant and selfish, and that's not the case. I wasn't aware that creative people were often seen that way, but what is your research and, and what have you found? Well, uh, what I concluded was that these uh, notion that creative people are arrogant and selfish uh, is the appearance that comes from a person's behavior when that person is so committed to what they want to do that they don't notice anybody else and they they kind of uh, are in a world of their own. Um, and so to normal people, that seems like, well, this guy is not being mean. This person is so arrogant. He doesn't give me the time of day. But it's not really that. I mean, these people don't intend to be... Um, arrogant and they don't do it because of their own uh, selfish reasons. They do it because they are committed to the ideas they are working with and that takes all their attention. That's the precedent of their lives. Yeah, uh, yeah. if they have um, priorities, that's the first priority is to make sure that what they work with will be realized because this is more important than their own life, in a in a way. So they are. You need that kind of commitment and devotion to get something major accomplished in life. It seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. But um, so it's kind of uh, a little bit paradoxical because it is almost obsessive kind of thing. But at the same time, it is an obsession which is highly. Uh, it's good for society and it's good for the person himself because it's enjoyable. I mean, it's something that you wouldn't want to do anything else. Um, you've seen a lot of cases where creativity has helped uh, science 
further itself. Those individuals that are creative made a lot of contributions to the sciences. We've seen it in the arts and literature. You also call for more creativity to be cultivated in business and in government and in education and even sports. I know the Dallas Cowboys uh, coach, former coach, used your book a lot to uh, good effect. So what is your comment on that? Well, yeah, I think that um, both flow and creativity are not uh, not by any means uh, specific to arts or science. I think it's uh, they are part of our everyday life, and uh, um, it may be especially uh, important uh, to to make sure that. Uh, you provide as much opportunity for flow in the various institutions, you know, schools, workplace, families. One of the things that surprises me is how little flow people experience at home, for instance. It's easier to get flow at work than at home because uh, work, at least it has clear goals, gives you feedback, you know what you're doing. There are um, constant, um, there's a reward system built into it and you can balance challenge and skills but once you people get home in a family uh, everybody is kind of uh, tired out and uh, they think that somehow by being home things will turn suddenly uh, nice and rosy and everybody will have a good time but it's not it doesn't happen by itself you have to to make it happen and you have to dedicate attention um, as with sports or as with uh, work and well, we should find out then how everyone can induce more flow and creativity in their life on a daily basis in the home, wherever that uh, you are. And we'll find out. You, you must have some pointers on that. We'll get those from Mihai Mihai, author of Creativity and Flow. When we come back, I'm Laura Lee. Laura Lee, back on the Laura Lee Show, talking with Mihai Mihai on flow and creativity. I wanted to know what uh, you raised two sons. You you have a family life where you must have taken some pains to encourage. Uh, I asked you during the break about your sons. You said one teaches Chinese and religion at uh, a college and translates old Taoist, old Taoist manuscripts, and the other is enthusiastically uh, building artificial life systems just for the sheer joy of it. So obviously you've inculcated this in your own children and in your own life. What tips do you have to our listeners to instill this in their children and also in their own lives on a daily basis? Well, Laura, it's a hard question because for each person it's a little different. But I think if there is one one constant, you know, this is that you have to pay attention to life in a sense. I mean, that sounds uh, kind of uh, hackneyed, but uh, for instance, with children, you have to pay attention to uh, day by day as they grow, what they're interested in, what they're good at, what they get have fun in, and participate with them in these activities. And we did that all the time, both my wife and I. I mean, we joke with them, we, we learned with them, we, we learned new things with them, we taught them things, we took them to look interesting thing, at interesting things. And uh, of course, that attention, you can uh, focus that attention only if you enjoy it. Otherwise, it becomes a big chore. We, uh, for not, us children, were never a chore. I mean, we we really had fun with them, and we treated them as adults, and we um, 
I expected them to be uh, as adults uh, while keeping their enthusiasm and curiosity all their life, and they still have it. And uh, our grandchildren now have the same uh, uh, enthusiasm and curiosity, and uh, they are so full of life. It's it's pleasure. But you, so you have to pay attention, and um, I think this is true of any kind of. Um, flow experience is that you have to, uh, in order to develop the skills to begin enjoying something, you have to focus uh, on that activity. And uh, too many of us uh, now in this uh, modern world keep getting distracted. We listen constantly to some kind of Walkman or we watch TV or we talk to each other even if we don't have anything to say and just to keep busy, just to keep our mind from beginning to to turn towards thoughts that we don't want to have or because we're afraid of being alone or not having anything um, to do. And so we fill out our mind constantly with trivia instead of focusing on something which will begin to pay off dividends in terms of whether it's music or whether it's a good book or whether it's a child or whether it's your job that you can do better than you did before. Um, most of the people who get flow from their jobs are people who, not necessarily people who have great jobs. I mean, there are surgeons, sure, but even assembly line workers can get flow out of their job if they can begin to really focus on what they're doing, see if they can do it better, see if they can move beyond their present job to one that requires more skill, etc. And once once you realize the power that our uh, attention has, that's why I like to call attention psychic energy, because we can accomplish almost anything if we focus attention on on something and at first it's painful perhaps because we are not used to it we don't like to concentrate but once we begin to see what we can accomplish and begin to see that we are learning to play the guitar or learning to play chess or learning a foreign language or, or learning to become friends with our children once you see that payoff then it becomes enjoyable and we can set ourselves up just not a, not necessarily just our activities, but our approach to whatever activity is. You were saying there's that sense of impeccability of living your life, paying yeah. attention, being present, yeah, throwing like, yourself like into word. it, getting in. Uh, I haven't used it for a long time, but impeccable. I I think that's a good good um, flag to march behind. I mean, if you think of your uh, that that's your goal is to do things that are almost uh, perfect in that sense. And you can make everything, you know, gardening or washing dishes also into an impeccable performance. You know? and, and when you do that, you feel proud, you feel you have accomplished something and you're ready to tackle bigger problems with much greater uh, self-confidence. And, uh, Our guest is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. He's a psychology professor at the University of Chicago. He's written three books. His latest is Creativity, Flow, and the Psychology of Discovery and Invention. Also, Flow, the Psychology of Optimal Experience, Steps Towards Enhancing the Quality of Life. 
and the third book, The Evolving Self, A Psychology for the Third Millennium. And we've been discussing uh, what creative people have in common, what the flow state is, and how we can uh, cultivate that more in our life. It's, it seems that it's a state of mind that we can choose in just about every activity. And there are also those spontaneous moments, aren't there, Mihai, where we just are caught up in a flow state, those, those optimal functioning moments. And I think all of our brains are equipped with it. You made that point that all of us, this is our normal state, really, to be out of the flow state is almost abnormal in terms of what God's designed for us. And children are naturally in the flow state. There's a lot we can do to encourage the flow and creativity uh, states in our children, in ourselves. But I'm wondering also, it seems society needs to make better use of the contributions of creative people to encourage it and also to make use of those steps that will push the seams of the envelope. This has been the Laura Lee's Show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for the adventure. I'm Laura Lee. Thank you, Laura. Laura Lee Online. www.lauralee.com.